Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric Xandra 13, and game over, man, it's Michael Kester. <laughs> Just lead with that, I guess. That's fair. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm sad. It's, it's with a heavy heart that we bring a close to uh, Spooky Month, because as you all know, as everybody knows, horror movies only exist within the four weeks of October. And immediately following October 31st, horror is resigned to movies we don't watch. Not you and I we, but like the royal social we. After October 31st, horror is resigned to the rest of this fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, should we break a surprise right now? I'm not going to say anything right now, but okay. if you thought something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue was over, you think again. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that's all I'll say for now. But let's concentrate on the task at hand. What are we doing today on the show? Today we're doing something blue. We are going to do Deep Rising and Dagon, which is one possible way to pronounce that name. Da- should we just run through them all now? Dagon, Dagon, Dagon. Uh, was that it? Are There's there a number, but I don't want to play any further into that. It's scary after that point. Okay, great. We, uh, in, in true double feature fashion, uh, we got to something blue and we went so far into the weeds of what blue represented in society. We were having conversations about sadness, depression, um, the police, liberalism, uh, anything, anything remote, um, uh, literally there was that, um, what was it? The, uh, the blue demon, blue beard. We talked, oh, about, yeah, we blue talked beard. about blue beard and I was talking about doing the, uh, luchador blue demon movie. We went deeply into the weeds, blue humor. Yeah. That was another one before you, uh, you just went, you know, like sometimes, sometimes you just got to go with the low hanging fruit. Cause what we were avoiding was doing, you know, like the Meg and deep blue sea, right? That's what we were avoiding doing. And then you came up with the brilliant idea to add a layer to the blue of finding some treasures deep in the blue. And so you suggested these two sort of undiscovered gems of aquatic horror movies. And to your credit, they're not like shark movies, which I think was really what we were afraid of doing. We didn't want to do shark movies. Yeah, if I could give you my pithy little, I've even got a package for you already. Aquatic horror buried treasure. There you go. They're beautiful. Yeah, I was basically trying to avoid this segment we're in right now where we have to spend 25 minutes explaining what we mean by blue and then also why blue fits into October and right. then why we're doing this weird wedding theme and like what fucking show you accidentally tuned into. <laughs> and I was like, you know, aquatic horror is, uh, I also feel like aquatic horror is this great subgenre that we've never just fully gone into and talked about the themes and it's, you know, it's a it's a very rich subgenre because it's it reads extremely surface, right? It reads as like can't say surface, but yeah, 
I know. I well, look. I avoided saying took a deep dive, so that's about the best <laughs> you're going to get from me. And now I've just ruined everything. Um, but look, I mean, the thing with these movies is you watch them, and they they just seem like a oh, blockbuster entertainment, you know, cheap thrills. Mm-hmm. And then if you actually walk into the fucking theater and sit down and uh, take the proverbial ride. One, they're way fucking weirder than mm-hmm. you think they're going to be, which is the real, I mean, fuck themes. The movies are weird and that's awesome. But there is a lot to kind of chew on. There's a, there's a lot of sort of existential dread in all of these mm-hmm. these things that hopefully people enjoyed. A lot of real oppressive, I mean, I'll tell you right at the top, The one of the things I love about aquatic horror is finding that I'm afraid of all these things I didn't even know I should yeah. be afraid of. Yeah, And that's really the stuff thematic, like that's this whole subgenre for me is, oh, fuck, another thing to worry about. <laughs> so yeah, we, um, you know, we also did two that I hadn't seen yet, you hadn't seen. Yep. And I thought it really would fit the spirit of the show to, uh, you know, to do some some stuff where we didn't know if it would be good in hopes of finding some buried treasure. And I think we have today. I, I think, think there, I was pleasantly surprised with the results. I'll call it a success. Um Anybody who agrees it's a success, patreon.com forward slash double feature. That's a good spot to show us your support by putting it together a successful show. Now, on the other hand, if you think this is an abysmal failure, please help us do better and go to patreon.com forward slash double feature. Just put a little bit of money to keep our show going and we promise to improve eventually Maybe. I'm hoping we expose some people to a new type of movie that maybe they didn't even realize was uh, that there's a whole subgenre of this and, and really kind of realize all the different places they could go, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. So that's what the Patreon's about. We want you to be part of the show. You can go on there. You can recommend movies. You can send us some messages. I'm interested to hear people's feedback who watch these two movies back to back. But... Uh, I think enough fucking stalling. Yeah, man. I want real. to talk about Deep Rising. This is a movie that that desperately needs you to create a good marketing logline for mm-hmm. it before we begin. But we will be rendering a new poster and new marketing <laughs> materials in real time here. Deep Rising is the story of a state-of-the-art cruise ship that uh, runs afoul of... A sea monster unlike you have ever seen before. One smarter than you, one faster than you, and one with only a taste for your blood. How will you survive the deep rising? Wow. Really getting personal there. <laughs> really getting first person. Really getting first personal. <laughs> Deep Rising is uh, one of those movies where we put together uh, a hardworking crew of misfits. They're they're mercenaries. They go off on a thing. They find out it's a you know it's a no questions asked kind of scenario, and they come to find that they should ask some questions. That's mm-hmm. really kind of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then once they really get into it, they're uh, they're you know really picked off one by one. But there's there's something that even when you look at this as top log line as you can, as as kind of uh, fuck it, man. Let's use the word trope as tropey mm-hmm. of a setup for a movie as you can. The wrinkle is going to be, oh, but you don't know what's down there, and when you get down there, you weren't ready for the. It's got that event horizon mm-hmm. thing. It's got that sort of like 
oh, I knew like, oh, I should ask some questions. But then you sit there as the audience going, I should ask some fucking questions about this movie. I was not, I should not have been eating while I was doing this. Like I'm canceling my scuba diving trip next week. Like I, I really was not prepped for this. Now the movie would have you believe that this is actually about a dude who loves jet skiing with his fiance in front of a fireball and uh, does not make even a single mention of a tentacle. Mm-hmm. And I think double feature audiences know the tentacle is the, it is the reason for the season, my friend. Absolutely. It's tentacles are bust here on double feature. Yeah. So like we, we do get a, a bit of a line in the beginning where we're talking about what the fear of the movie is. And I think the fear is probably a good place to start because the pieces of our log line that we might normally sort of pick apart to try to get to the meat of the theme. I'm not really sure that that helps us a ton. Okay, so like look at our crew. We have, you know, who is this like fiery, hardworking woman, financial backer guy, cocksure, white, bravado dude, uh, <laughs> the tech relief that I made fun of in the opening of our show. Um a black man, you know, this is just <laughs> like, we didn't, we just copy pasted from these other genres. I will ask you one question about that. You've seen a lot of movies. I'm going to ask you a question about this. Where did this come from? This kind of like ragtag crew of like literally these specific characters. I mean, I, I, I mean, you mentioned the Meg earlier. That's sure. that's a very modern version of this. Sure. Even Underwater, which is a movie that the Kirsten Stewart movie that I thought was pretty fucking good, mm-hmm. it did still begin the same way. It it was it even subverted some of these tropes by being super aware of them. Mm-hmm. The fact Kirsten Stewart's the protagonist of the movie is like a subversion of of our dude riding the jet ski in this movie. Yeah. So they're all aware of it. I think it, I mean, you know, it's something that we've also, we've seen a lot of stuff, but the place that we see it pretty much, the place where the entire genre relies on it is no surprise. Michael's going to talk about 80 slasher movies. It's, I think it's this device that was definitely picked up and run with in slasher films that if you just go with extremely high level tropes for your character bases it eliminates your need to flesh out those characters before you start killing them right it's if you have your dumb comic relief brother and your very cool black friend and your promiscuous girl and your nerdy girl as soon as you establish those stereotypes the stoners, right? As soon as you establish those stereotypes, the decisions they make in the upcoming peril don't need any basis. You don't need to go, why would a person do that? Because they just make these stoner decisions. Mm, yeah. I think that's where it comes from. I I'm not trying to say that that's what it is here, but I think that the, I think that the, it's, it's a device to allow you to have a wide group of different people who are all going to deal with adversity in very specific ways to their character without needing an extra hour of the hateful eight just to explain the second half. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the earliest time I can remember seeing this is probably alien. Sure. Some shade of this. You know, an alien, I think, does a really, the Dan O'Bannon script, 
I mentioned that I'm trying to remember if Dan O'Bannon ever talked about like stuff he ripped off for <laughs> that movie. But that's a pretty sincere attempt to even make every character well-rounded. And, you know, when we see these movies today, I don't think they're just putting the trope there to subvert it. I do think there is something, like, I'll defend the idea just in itself of taking people from, say, six walks of life and putting them on a sunshine together. In a circle. Oh, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's better. (laughs) But yeah, then you, you know, because this is, um, this, and it's a very American idea, it's very melting pot, it's very what happens when a team of these people with very different beliefs, like, it's actually a step beyond that. What's kind of cool about this as a trope is it's not what happens when we put them together. This is kind of, this reads to me like a team of people who've worked together for a long time. You know, this is also... Um, uh, Firefly, a movie like that, to some extent, it's Star Wars... So for the longest time, we've been putting teams of people from different backgrounds together because it immediately starts the story. Then we want to see how they interact with each other and what they do and where they might have disagreements and you know characters sway each other. So it just seems like for writing fodder, it's an interesting thing to just throw a couple people, a few of whom are are hot shots, one or two have a you know kind of a hidden secret or agenda. And you, you, you can start working on story elements pretty easily there. Anyways, none of this is what I want to talk about. I wanted to talk about the fear of this movie. Mm-hmm. It opens up and it says, okay, there's these, these parts of the ocean unexplored and it's like so fucking deep down there, man. You wouldn't even realize how, you don't even know how deep it is. We can put mountains and stuff in there. It's like very, very deep. And so what is it doing? It's going... Okay, there's unexplored parts of Earth. Mm -hmm. And in those parts, there may exist real world monsters. Mm -hmm. So I guess the big question of Deep Rising for me to talk about aquatic horror in, in this specific movie is what is this movie telling us to be afraid of? What is it tapping into? I definitely feel like actually what both of these movies do, but Deep Rising definitely hits on it extremely strongly with the intro titles, is it sort of like, it's sort of playing on the same things as Cosmic Horror. The second movie is a fucking Lovecraft movie, but it's like playing into these ideas of Cosmic Horror but then adding this element of except it's right in your backyard, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's playing on this idea that we as human beings are pretty sure what the threats are to our existence, right? Mm-hmm. And we can all sort of agree that, you know, you hit an age, when you're, when you're very young, you're afraid of like all sorts of things that don't make sense, like bears, right? You're just like, bears are scary. What if a bear came into my room? Yeah. And then you slowly realize that there are certain things that you don't need to be afraid of, and then this movie goes, you might not know as much as you think right. about the very planet on which you live. It's really, it's really, it's actually, this movie actually does this better than, but it's really the same sort of ideas as like what people have adopted from kaiju movies is that there's sort of, there's sort of, there's a, a lot about planet Earth that we still don't know. And sometimes people do. Sometimes people do small stuff, you know, like some sort of insect uh, or zombies. 
but I think when when you do like these sort of beasts of the deep that you know you don't get to see, you don't show the monster, you know nothing about them. The habitat itself is foreign to you. I think the fact that you don't know what it is is what's supposed to be scary. Yeah, we talk. Well, it's funny you bring up cosmic horror. We've already uh, mentioned a couple movies that are space movies. Just in talking about mm-hmm. aquatic horror, it's like, oh, you know, aquatic horror, like Event Horizon, <laughs> like yeah. what a weird yeah. fucking. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just wet space, <laughs> right? <laughs> when we talked uh, about the movie The Color Out of Space, we talked about uh, for people on the Patreon. That's a good one to go back to. That was a cosmic horror movie, and a big thing was the fear of the unknown, the mm-hmm. vastness, the sort of uh, the the part that hits me about that is this sort of um, this immediate this realization of how small you are and how big the universe is. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say the same thing, yeah, and how that can just overwhelm because it. It, there's something almost biological, you know, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Maybe that's part of what's scary. But, you know, when you think about yourself in the middle of the ocean and you can't swim somewhere, you can't life, like things are totally out of your hands. And also there's something about the ocean where there's a there's another dimension to it. So you can't, you know, as far as you look left, right, you know, north, south, east or west, it's only water. Mm-hmm. And you could also get pulled down. And this movie is going, and you can get pulled down even further than you think. It's Mm -hmm. just like, I'm almost overwhelmed talking about it because if you can really put yourself on the, you know, put yourself on a a floating along on a little inflatable tube and then imagine it's in the middle of the fucking ocean Mm -hmm. and you don't even know how things work in the middle of the ocean, what kind of, you know, hurricanes and typhoons and uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, the side thinking about you on one of these boats and the size of the boat and that the boat is like city big and what it would be like to have a a city run over you in the ocean, you know. Mm -hmm. The scale and the scope, I think, taps into, I'm going to play pop psychologist, taps into some part or pop Darwin, uh, (laughs) pop evolutionary biologist, I guess. But there's something about, you know, your brain's going, oh, fuck a dinosaur, basically. It's going, oh my sure. God, this thing is massive. It's going to destroy me easily. I must flee. So there's the fear of the unknown. There's the fear of, of what's next, of not knowing what's out there. And whether this movie even knows it or not, I think it really taps into that with, uh, with the effects. Mm-hmm. You know, because you... All right, so when we get this, this tentacle monster... There's probably some more um, scholastic word to use. When I think you they talk call it about. Uh, I, th- the, I think it's hentai is the Japanese name for a tentacle monster. Thank you. Yes, yes. We should we should use the proper academic. Um, what's the name of the formatting? The when you write an essay, the fucking oh citation standards for like where you yeah no like where you put a where you put your commas and stuff. There's oh. like the different schools of... Oxford, Oxford comma? I don't know. It's it's like the Oxford style or the whatever. Right. I don't... I, <laughs> I've been out of school so long I can't make the joke connect, <laughs> but it's it wasn't that good anyways. <laughs> so when the hentai is first revealed, you know, they're walking into the room and they are stepping on these kind of like meat skeletons. Yep. And it's such a reveal because you don't know what you're going to get, but it almost, the movie, you know, it 
I almost worried watching this movie, like, oh, damn, we're going to end October with a like an action movie instead of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And as soon as people Lots start... Lots of explosions, yeah. Yeah, as soon as people start crushing half-fleshy meat skulls, I'm like, never mind, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this is, we're in the basement now. Things are all right. But they go through this room and it's, you know, it's gory and it's gross. And they get to the tentacle reveal. So this is, this is really the buried treasure part of Deep Rising. I don't want to spoil too much of this in case people haven't seen it. There are spoilers in our show. So just go watch Deep Rising if any of this is sounding interesting to you. But when they get to the moment, I am shocked how good it is. Mm-hmm. The thing fucking comes down. You get way more of a look at it than you thought you, you were going to. And it has its whole you know, uh, showcase moment and I'm wowed by it. And that's before it even spits out a half-digested person who like has some lines he can't get through but, but while he swivels in three dimensions and then, <laughs> you know, acids to the floor. Yeah, like, It's just so much at once. And it fits so well into aquatic horror because of how just the the overwhelming amount of stuff that's suddenly thrown at you. I mean, I feel like honestly, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of comparisons to this movie to other, you know, this movie was accused of being ripoffs of a lot of things, some of which we've already named. But I feel like where it differs is this moment. I feel like this movie, you know, in its sort of action sequences, it's basically going, it's, it's, it's my nerves aren't, aren't, solely that this is an action movie, but that there's too many explosions for this to pay off in any sort of way. You know, mm-hmm. you there's only so many explosions that you can show and so many tableaus of halved humans before you're like, there's no way you can pay this off in in a tableau that's going to like overpower the first three quarters of this movie. Sure, sure. And it's literally like Every other every other rule in 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 these movies is you know we talk about don't show the monster and like the the mystique of the shadows when you're when you're doing some some mysterious force that's killing off a party one by one and when this movie finally turns on all the the house lights and goes this is what you've been scared of instead of going oh okay you go yeah that is an absolutely <laughs> terrifying thing. I was rightfully afraid this whole time. Yeah, when they get to the feeding ground at the end, you know, it's yeah. such a big, uh, it, I mean, it's exactly the scene you want at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen... I was trying to avoid quoting him too. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we see the little hentai attack in the hall where we get a sense of like, with this monster folds open and then inside the folds, there's like another fold and that fold has little spines. And like, so there's a lot going on. But to, you're right, to have another another moment that even beats out the previous moment <laughs> or really starts paying off a lot of this stuff. It's, yeah, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to say much to spoil it. I did want to do, I want to do something weird here and give you a little bit of a hot take on this movie because you and I have had quite a journey with these. Ooh, shit. Yeah, and no, you know, we don't have to talk about it much, but uh, this is an early CGI movie. It is. Computer graphics are being used. Yeah. I'm going to say something that I think is going to uh, really shock you here. So get ready. <laughs> This was the first time I ever watched a movie and the bad early CGI was so bad 
but I was so removed from it. I was like, oh, this is a look for the effects. I feel the this same This is way. like a distinct... It's... Yeah. It reminds me now of also, you know, you, you watch the 80s stuff, the practical effects, and you go like, yeah, things were good back then. But for so long, the conventional wisdom was keep doing it that way because this stuff will age so poorly. But now... I would make something today that used this kind of CG. For an aesthetic. Because the sort of trash it looks like. Yeah. The bad that yeah. it looks like is not the same bad we have today. And it's so different. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's. And it never really occurred to me that this would age back into being good, but that is how things work. I definitely feel the same way. I, I don't know if it was this movie. That shocks me that you do. Yeah, I know. I don't know if it's this movie or another movie I watched recently with terrible CG. I can't recall. But I definitely recall watching it and then being like, it might have been, uh, actually it might have been House of Wax because I didn't know how good I had it. But oh yeah, <laughs> I, I remember thinking like, seeing it and being like, this is something I could see myself chasing just like Jalo. Yeah, isn't that weird? I could see myself just like getting in a mood where I want to see bad late 90s CG in a movie and like needing to find it. Yeah. The same way that like you just get in a mood and you're like, I don't even remember what happens in Deep Red, but it is the movie I want to watch right now. It's like if someone showed you, you know, a Windows XP computer in 2002, you'd be like, oh, this isn't the latest thing. I don't mm -hmm. want this. But if you saw it now, you might click it right. for a while because you're like, oh, yeah, I sort of, re oh, this is fun. What that's a called, dumb That's called little... vaporwave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I got my years right for Windows XP, but it's like a badge of honor if I didn't, so... Right. Yeah, and you know, in truth, and like this is the real hot part of this tag. Nobody wants to fucking hear this. Yeah. But when you look at the the great '80s practical effects, mm -hmm. it was a time that was very much about inventiveness. It wasn't about photorealism to begin with. I think one of the best practical effects movies I've ever seen is The Thing. You showed me The Thing. I still think about all of those different scenes today, and they're great, but they're not photorealistic. Mm -hmm. You do not watch, and if you think they are, watch The Thing again. Go see the 4K of The Thing. Watching The Thing, I am amazed and delighted by how big the vision is and how everything moves and how inventive it is. And I could talk at length about why it's some of the best effects work. Mm -hmm. But I don't for a second really think Kurt Russell is acting across from another sentient being. You know, that's not, it's not photorealism. And photorealism is different from good. Mm -hmm. When we look back at some of the most photorealistic eras of effects, they weren't the most ambitious. There's almost a, uh, a direct trade-off. I don't know if that's, I don't want to make the argument that's by necessity or not here. That's a bigger conversation and one for effects artists and not for me. But the eras that we celebrate the most with effects, it's kind of the same as models. Mm -hmm. When I look at models of cities today on a 4K picture, they don't really look like cities. I'm less fooled than I've ever been. But they do look cooler than when we get these stock footage shots of cities. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I don't know. It's just all aesthetics and it's very uh, yeah, very interesting to me. Anyways, this other movie whose title I can't pronounce. Yeah, so uh, this one actually does... Dagon. It, da da <laughs> Dagon. Dagon it. Boo. This one actually uses both. This uses both. This is a little practical and a little, a lot of CG. Um, 
But uh, before <laughs> you're telling your telling your voice how you feel about that, it's different. Um, but there's this thing that I do want to talk about with this movie, and it's not how scary the villagers are, which we'll get to. So this was directed by one of our one of our our good friends from Double Feature. His name's Stuart Gordon. Mm-hmm. Believe uh, we actually I don't remember if we and did you end up recording an interview with Stuart Gordon on the Music Box Massacre? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really embarrassing, but it is my only recorded conversation with Stuart Gordon. Yeah, a person who I'm sure I would have talked to a billion times had I just been a little older. At, you know, he lived in Chicago and uh, was. I mean, whatever. I don't mean to yeah, railroad no, you're over you're good. what you're going to say. Uh, well, no. I I mean the thing the thing about Stuart Gordon is is on double feature. We always talk about Stuart Gordon super affectionately. We've we're probably getting close to exhausting all of his movies. Oh no way, man! I think there's a lot of weird Stuart Gordon. Well, we there's haven't, there's definitely we get into the some real good weird ones. stuff. After. There's some really fun yeah, yeah. ones. Um, did he do Space Truckers? Space Truckers is great. He did Space Truckers. I don't know if he did or not. Well, I think about. You know, Reanimator and From Beyond we did, and Stuck, weird movie Stuck, but Castle Freak we've never Castle talked Freak. about. So that'd be another good one. Well, that, and that's a perfect example. So when 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 I think of Stuart Gordon as the master of horror, Stuart Gordon, I think of the guy who did Reanimator, and that's sort of like there's like a sort of comprehension to how that movie was created that feels maybe it's just because people affectionately like still watch it. But every the the bulk of Stuart Gordon's work, the real bulk of it, and and to our discredit, the stuff we haven't done much of on the show is this like run and gun, grimy, like semi flick movie, like Dagon, and you mentioned Castle yeah, Freak. Yeah, he has this sort of there's this there's this like really um, cold aesthetic to a lot of his movies that. Uh, it's not the part of Stuart Gordon that I think of because I I think of Stuart Gordon with uh, Jeffrey Combs and I think of the fun um, 80s optically neon movies that he did. But there's just a ton of his filmography that is like kind of mean and like really gross and feels really gritty. And not to say that it, it not to say that it doesn't feel um like he knows what he's doing. Cause I'm not discrediting his ability to make movies. I'm saying that he has that, that the aesthetic that Stuart Gordon is, is actually closer in my mind now to Herschel Gordon Lewis and not, I was just going to say, right, yeah, and not so much the like polished fucking return of the living dead. But man, you know, that's that's the thing that like the story of Stuart Gordon just kind of breaks my heart in a way because he's I just feel like we should have gotten another fucking twenty movies from him that were just they're so good absolutely they're so so good yeah. but there is a, there is a lot I haven't explored yet but I just uh, you know Stuart Gordon is a case where he made these small movies and they were mm-hmm. excellent and very distinct which is the the thing I applaud above all else is just being distinctly weird. Um, very much you can you can see his signature but he is one of those filmmakers where when he got a little more money and he made a little bit bigger movie it was also fucking great and not every filmmaker scales that way Mm -hmm. some excel in this you know this tiny realm and if they happen to land something bigger it's 
uh, you know, I don't want to disparage anybody specifically, but you know what I mean? Like you make a tiny movie, somebody goes, hey, make something a little bigger, a little flashier, a little whatever. You pick up those kind of projects and they don't necessarily have the magic because mm -hmm. low budget filmmaking is a certain magic and part of it is character. Part The character of the director, I mean, the sort of like, you do so many jobs that seeing seeing who a director is without them ever physically stepping on screen is a lot easier, I feel, in low-budget filmmaking because they have to do so many jobs. So you get to experience so much of that. It's so much more one person, one vision. And so to, to see the stuff like From Beyond or Reanimator that had a, a big vision and it's still very distinctly Stuart Gordon and that he still just fucking, you know, smashes it. I mean, it's just great. If you, for some reason, if you haven't seen these movies and you're a fan of 80s horror, see them because they're just, they're such outstanding films. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about what we're doing in this movie. Let me like try to give you a very marketing log line. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, uh, there's a couple people on a boat. One of them is injured. And so our hero has to go to shore. But when he gets to the nearby island... He finds the inhabitants have a mysterious secret. Mm -hmm. So we're doing mysterious secret film. Sure. But once we really start getting into the secret, it's not like a town of normal people. And we're, well, do they have a secret or don't they? And will we uncover it? We're not doing that. We get to shore and within 10 minutes, we're like, can we get offshore or do we have to right. stay here? This is not... Do you people even speak? What's going on here? Well, and then there's the as the as the movie sort of goes on, there's this added to you know you know the um you know the the game the floor is lava that you yes. play yeah so this this movie is sort of like you say you're like okay well something dangerous is in the water let's go to shore and then you go oh shit this city is actually considerably dangerous uh, maybe we should go back out to sea however similar to the floor is lava. Uh, this movie follows a rule of the ocean will rape you. And so you don't want to go there. Fucking Lovecraft, man. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a true Lovecraft adaptation. It feels like one of the most Lovecraftian Lovecraft adaptations <laughs> I've ever seen. That's what you're always looking for, right? Because the I'm, I'm not very storied in Lovecraft, but the one thing I do know is that every time one of these movies comes out, there ha there has to be an immediate evaluation of like, oh, are we finally seeing Lovecraft on screen? Because we've never really got that. Right. And so, you know, when people see this movie, they kind of go, okay, well, is that, how close did we get to Lovecraft on screen? Like that's some elusive thing that, you know, it would be, imagine an alternate world where where somebody, even somebody like Stephen King we didn't have any faithful adaptation. Imagine a world like, you know, 15 years ago. Right. <laughs> where there were, you know, like, there's a bunch of Stephen King adaptations, but they all sort of like diverge wildly. And well, we don't even, have the, even the ones he made, he couldn't make faithful adaptations. <laughs> yeah, right. And a lot of beloved movies, but in a way it almost makes it worse for a Stephen King fan, I think, mm -hmm. that there are these like, oh yeah, The Shining's really great. And you're like, oh, miniseries was more, more faithful. So I, I do think there is something about chasing the constant, you know, like H.P. Lovecraft is fucking weird. Mm -hmm. And he's a, a big name 
in this genre and in the subject matter and in aquatic horror. Mm-hmm. Well, in cosmic horror. And so, yes, and I guess maybe even more specifically there. So, you know, we've we've talked about Lovecraft a bit before, but I do think there's some element of watching this movie and immediately going like, oh, do we have a, a is this how Lovecraft feels when it's filmed? And so sort of the debate over that. Tapping into the fear in this movie is interesting because it's it's some of the stuff that you mentioned before. It's some of what we saw in the previous movie. And I'm trying to figure out if it's exclusively the same. You know, like we're once again, we're even more so out all alone in the ocean. Everywhere we look, there's nothing we can do. Oh, wait, there's an island. There might be some help, but it's all out of our hands. It's unknown elements. I'm going to make this tiny, tiny decision. God, everything feeds in metaphorically to this cosmic horror stuff, but the universe is so big and almost every decision's out of my hands. What can I do? Mm-hmm. I'll make a tiny decision that might play some role in my fate. Really doesn't seem to play much of a role, but it's the only hand I have to play. So I think that's kind of going on. There's a lot of stuff thematically that's different, but as far as the fear component, it's you know, it's maybe finding yourself in a little bit more of a a bizarre, threatening, not knowing kind of place, mm-hmm. right? Because deep rising is we have to go through these corridors and run away from things that are zipping down the corridors and hit the elevator button in time. That's deep rising. Right. This movie is kind of like we're on an island. The island is weird. Oh, wait, it's bad weird. Uh, what do I do about that? Mm-hmm. Is there a car? Do I use the car? Where am I even going to sure. fucking go? I'm on the, you know, like, right. is this a continent? What am I doing here? So I feel like it's kind of just a, am I permanently fucked? Mm-hmm. Question mark. Like that's more the fear. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's about the, it's, it's metaphorically about it, the first movie is sort of like literally about not being on solid ground. And this is metaphorically about like, I'm not sure how to get to safety from where I am. I don't know what steps need to be taken. I, they don't oh, that's have that's a, a good one though. Not on solid ground. Right. That is very much it. Yeah. Cause you, you know, in any other horror movie, you know, let, I'm just going to go back to slashers because you don't have to have seen them to know what happens. You call the police, right? There's one thing that maybe that'll work out. It's just like the fucking Friday the 13th video game, dude. This is how you win. You get the phone to work, you fix the car, or you run out of the camp. That's how you win the game. Uh And that's, you know, but when you're on an island, there's no phones. You fix a car to what? Drive to the other side of the island. And then, or you get in a boat and paddle off into the vast deep blue in one direction, maybe, and you just die out there. Yeah. The idea of escaping the problem goes away. And instead, you are now forced to be a minuscule player in this, in this, you know, greater scheme. You're still that tiny person. However, you have to actively win now in order to survive. Yeah. You can't escape the problem. You have to solve the problem or die. And you and you, but you've already been resigned to this minuscule spec with no agency. Yeah, when we when we get to what's actually going on with the mythology of this island, and that's hard to get to too because nobody speaks your language. So there's also the language barrier element to make it feel even more unknown, even more out of your element. But even we get this um, this uh, 
Francisco Ribal, I think is his, excuse me on his name. But the actor that the the movie's uh, dedicated to or pays tribute to at the end. He was in like Belle de Jour, uh, Sorcerer, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. You know, very distinct in his in his older age. He has that very uh, distinct scar on his nose. Like, what a uh, fucking part for him in this movie. Was in like Rivette's uh, The Nun in the 60s. And I don't know if he and Stuart Gordon were close or not really the point. He tells this monologue and he's got such a thick, distinct accent that I had to go back and watch the scene when it ended and and go like, okay, I'm not really sure I understand. Like there's a devil's bargain being made here, but it's sort of like, okay, we live in this fishing town and one day there's no more fish and we're all hungry and we're starving. We go to the church, we pray to God, give us fish. He gives us no fish. When a man enters the town and the man goes, I will give you fish. If you, for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you want the fish or not? And they're all like, yes, give us the fish, we'll do it. And so they get the fish, they eat the fish and they're happy. But then one day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sort of like, well, you can't like yada yada over though. Like, what is the, the <laughs> can I see this contract? Like, I'm a little unsure what exactly. But you you know from watching movies, like it's a devil's bargain. That's mm-hmm. that's really, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. I don't know, fish people, we wind up on this weird fucking island with right. people turning into fish, people from, do you know the exact? I mean, it's, it's. Did it, you read the contract? I did read the contract. Do uh, the fish people replace the normal people? Do they eat the people? The fish grow into people? What's going on here? Yeah, so the fish people, the fish people replace the normal people because it's basically, you know how like, you know how like conservatives are afraid everybody will eventually be a percent black? Oh yeah, it's, it's the same principle. <laughs> like the sea god. I did starts, wonder if there's like a fear of the other here. Maybe it is worth yeah. exploring the specifics of the contract. The sea god, you know, starts raping all the white women, and then they give birth to half fish, half white women babies. That's right. And right. eventually, all the white women die off, and then there's just a bunch of half fish half human hybrids and because you know the sea god is himself a little racist he doesn't want to rape the half fish people that's what's going on so 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 they need to find virginal not virginal but you know they need to find sacrificial lambs to rape maybe it starts as virginal but by the end of yeah, the just uh, whatever give by me the a end hole. of the town they're just like <laughs> god uh you're not allowed to make a port in a storm joke on here. I'm just letting you know right now, I'm not clearing that for the edit. So don't even, I see your brain working over there. I don't. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So, so like in the last movie, you know, we were dealing with more of a, a sort of um, a Greek myth kind of descent into hell, mm-hmm. uh, going down in the elevator and going through these, the maybe layers of hell, but maybe just this like descent into what's next. Cosmic horror, aquatic horror, the fear of the unknown. And part of that, metaphorically, is the fear of life after death, is the fear of what happens when we die, is this it? But it's also just the fear of every next moment in your life. Oh no, what'll happen next Tuesday? I don't know. It's any, It could be anything. It's just the sort of uh, living with anxiety. And that's one of the things I really love about it. I think this movie is... It actually is so 
part of it's the sexuality that is so uh oh my god what the fuck that you you can't you don't even know to be afraid of it yet you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's got that kind of like stuart gordon horny to it yeah that a lot of his <laughs> movies had which is just sort of like you're in peril but let's do it with full nudity because fuck the censors and that's the part that reads very um very chicago filmmaking to me mm-hmm. is that sort of i you know that's one of the things i always remember talking to him about is like he was excited still at that age about like yeah we were all running around naked and you know like the fucking censors can go fuck themselves and we were all having a good t- you know he was very he actually like really awakened me to how much fun that was mm-hmm. that even though these were scenes of peril everybody on set like really enjoyed that experience and you know as as they got older and you hear um Barbara Crampton talk about Stewart sometimes and about making those movies and uh and just the sort of sort of sexuality in them was really playful for it being so grim you know it's it's kind of a nice reprieve from all of the fucking filmmaking stories we hear today mm-hmm. of how awful everything is these were people who were who were talking about the darkest of things in the art in the movies and it seems like really having fun doing it which is great to know for a movie that is so, like, uh, it's so unsettling. It's so, there's a quiet discomfort to this whole movie. The sound design around it, the failure of language, you know, the scenes of him sort of going through the house and then coming into the, you know, where he's running away and he finds the room with the siren that's in it, the, uh, our sort of mermaid person. That's in there. Right. <laughs> and this discomfort or this horror or this running away. I mean, this has a, a, a kind of Greek myth feel to it to me too, because it's just hitting you with all these emotions. You know, it's like, oh, I'm scared for the task at hand, the injured person on the boats, the, my own fate, uh, the girlfriend who's come to the island. And then you get to the island and you're like intrigued by the mystery and then you're horrified, you're running from people, it's danger, it's urgency. You get to this room and now it's like, hmm, this might be kind of hot. And then you get out of the room and you're like, oh, it's really quiet, uncomfortable here. It's just a, it's a real fucking, you know, bouquet of uh, emotion or whatever here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just such a great example of all the things a movie can do. Aquatic horror. Now you have it. Now you know everything. Now you've learned nothing and you know everything about aquatic horror. Thanks for watching two movies. Perfect. The other thing uh, that you should also know about um, H.P. Lovecraft is he was like super fucking racist. That's just, I think you just have to like oh, put yeah. that on that's, the wall. That's, that's why the thing I, you have to say. <laughs> why I diverted us away from him uh, often. You just said you knew one thing about him. I was like, well, I can double your knowledge. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, but fuck that. He's creepy. Uh, watch more fucking film, right? No, hold on. We have a website. <laughs> no, we have further. <laughs> we have uh, websites. It's doublefeature.fm. The Patreon. If you guys want to join the Patreon, huge thank you to the people who joined, especially for October. That's just very cool to see. We didn't really do this as a like a subscriber drive. It's a pledge drive. We should really 
Yeah, we should really do that because we're kind of in trouble on the Patreon. As uh, we'll do double feature totes. If you've tuned in any time this year, you will hear about that's patreon.com forward slash double feature. Big thanks to Henrik Dinter, the Abbot of Reason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John for being executive producers of the show. Hope you guys love these two movies. Hope we found some buried treasure. Deep Rising especially, just on the, you know, the other one's a Stuart Gordon movie. If you dig enough, you'll watch Stuart Gordon movies, you know they're good. Yep. But Deep Rising is like, I actually feel like this movie is one inspired casting choice away from being like a top shelf all-timer. It's really, it's like the kind of setup for a movie that writes the characters thin and then like Samuel Jackson comes in and just breathes Mm -hmm. life into it. Yeah. And they didn't really get their kind of like... I don't know who would have been the good yeah. the good pick, but if you get somebody, well, you know, again, underwater, right? Like we even kind of had this idea. The Meg is that way too. It's like A-list cast, see what they can do with this weird underwater thing. And so I, I feel like this is one of those movies that it's almost like this classic we always talk about and was really just that kind of like one, one yeah, little decision needed, away from needed that. Needed that fucking, needed to call it Mark Hamill. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can, uh, I think you can face swap yourself into the movie these days. So maybe just have fun with it that way. <laughs> All right. I'm rambling. Can you get us the fuck out of here? What are we doing? Fuck yeah. I'm happy to. We're going back to the journey. We're going from, from trip to journey. We just went through all of October. It wasn't a uh, trademark journey. It was just like a ride, but we're going to our official journey of the year next week we're, where we are, our ongoing look at the comparison similarities differences individual stories of exploitation film and french extreme film throughout their respective arcs so one over the course of a hundred years one over the course of like six and a half months and (laughs) we're just really getting into the minutiae of all that so next time the horror doesn't have to end and we're proving that because we're actually doing Blackula next week, which is like kind of a horror movie. Blackula will be your exploitation film and your French... It's got ex- a vampire in it, man. Does Come on. Does have a vampire. And uh, the French extreme movie is Pola X. Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. Leo's Carax movie. Yeah, and this will be uh, this will be one of our first real big cinema kind of movies. Yeah. And a director whose name's been around a lot this year. So this should be an interesting one to move from our last time doing this base mois to this. Go see those uh, those other movies and and check out those shows if you haven't. The previous one was base mois and uh, Wild Angels, right? The Wild Angels and base mois, and the first one we did was Criminal Lovers and Marijuana. Marijuana. And if you can't find the movies, it's also a great reason to tune into the show. We'll tell you what's going on with these two subgenres. Okay, now watch more fucking film. All right, bye.